from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. It has been brutally hot in Europe this summer, but people there are already worried about winter, fearing there won't be enough fossil gas to heat homes or run industry. And that is because Russia is using its main gas pipeline into Germany as a weapon, squeezing supply to retaliate against Europe's military assistance to Ukraine. Russian energy giant Gazprom has said that it will once again drastically cut gas supplies to EU countries through its main pipeline, Nord Stream 1, due to maintenance work. In mid-July, Russia shut the pipeline down, supposedly for maintenance. It's partially running again, but only sending gas at a trickle. And with this, the supplies through Nord Stream 1 pipeline would now drop to just 20% of its full capacity. The sudden halt sparked fears that Russia might be planning to close this crucial pipeline completely. Gas markets have been tightening since last year, and the problem is that the war in Ukraine is happening on top of already very tight markets. Prices were already record high, so everything is very tight right now. That is Anne-Sophie Corbeau, a global research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. She's an expert on gas markets, and she says the drop in supply is creating a scary scenario, making it difficult for the Europeans to store the gas they'll need when the season changes. You are looking at a map of Europe right now, and you are looking pipeline by pipeline. This is really frightening. So the deliveries of pipeline gas are really, really low, and people are worried that this is going to continue and therefore making the balance particularly tight for the winter. That doesn't just mean high prices. It could mean government rationing, industry that can't operate, pressure drops in pipelines that disrupt the system further, people freezing. Days after the Nord Stream pipeline was shut down, Anne-Sophie spoke with Jason Bordoff. Jason's the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy and co-host of the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast. And they talked about the scary new phase of the European gas crisis. And just remind everyone, when they look at the European landscape, you know, how important gas is to the energy system and where it's used, power sector, heating, industry, just kind of set the stage so people understand why why we're talking so much about gas. It's about a quarter of the energy consumption, roughly. So about, I would say, one-third to 40% is used in the residential commercial sector, mainly for heating purposes. Then uh, we have about a third in the power generation, and then we have the rest being used in the industry. And I mean, I think there has been probably a misconception from European politicians that, you know, Russia will continue to deliver gas, whatever. So they would be on the driving seat. And they have totally failed to recognize that, in fact, this is Russia which is on the driving seat. Jason was also joined by Dr. Tatiana Mitrova, a research fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy. And she says Russia increasingly sees fossil gas as a tool of war, and she's anticipating further disruptions for the market. Tatiana, how do you see where we are today? Indeed, it is more than 60% reduction in the gas flows today compared to the year ago. And uh, the most important factor is that Russia is at war with the collective West, as Russian officials say. So the target is maximum damage to the collective West. And that is really, really frightening because indeed we are in the middle of summer 
and the winter season, the heating season is approaching very, very fast. The levels in the underground storages are quite low. So uh, Europe faces now actually an existential dilemma, either to give up the values and to avoid crisis this winter or vice versa. That's a difficult choice. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. How bad will Europe's gas crisis get? This week, we're featuring a conversation from our friends at Columbia Energy Exchange. Jason Bordoff, Anne-Sophie Corbeau, and Tatiana Mitrova assess the evolving threat to people, the economy, and the transition to clean energy. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. And Sophie, let me uh, ask you, and then Tatiana, want your take too. You guys have described a situation today that seems pretty bleak. What people seem really worried about is this coming winter. So tell me why this winter is going to be so much worse. Part of it, obviously, is gas is needed for heating, so there's seasonal demand there. Uh, How ready are we for that, and and what do you expect? I know there's uncertainty. There's uncertainty in the weather and how cold things will be. But if you had to ballpark probabilities, are we talking about prices getting a little bit higher, or are we talking about blackouts and shutting down major parts of the economy? I think we are already talking about that. I mean, the problem, again, is that it is not only about natural gas, it's about other things. So people do not realize that nuclear is done massively in Europe, hydro is done as well. So all the renewables that we have been adding that that are presented as a solution in order to reduce natural gas are actually not enough to compensate the drop in hydro and in nuclear. So right now we need to burn more coal. And this is why we have seen in many countries that coal is being brought back. I mean, in Germany, in Austria, in France, in the Netherlands, everywhere is being brought back because there is no other issue in the power generation sector. But what is really, really frustrating for me is that we have been at economic war with Russia for almost five months and people have not been looking at the demand side of the equation. And this is really annoying. I mean, who in Europe knows about this document that the European Commission published with the IEA, like playing my part? I mean, we needed to talk about energy efficiency, about conservation, about rationing energy, about you know really doing something concrete a long time ago. Yes, I agree, demand has decreased a little bit in the industrial sector because they need to think about their competitiveness in the residential sector because for some people, indeed, the bill has increased. But, you know, I don't think the governments have been really telling citizens this is the worst energy crisis probably of your lives. We need to be really serious. We need to start doing something now. And it's not only about natural gas. It's about power because for every single kilowatt of power that you are generating, if you are using gas, you need two units of gas. 
That's what people don't realize. And, and the problem in Europe is that we have everything pretty much which is against us. I mean, again, the nuclear is done, the hydro is done. We have a heat wave right now. So, I mean, if we have very cold winter, then this is going to be really difficult. So, yes, we are already talking about shutting down parts of the industrial sector because we want to avoid that citizens' residential sector is going to be freezing in the dark in the middle of the winter. The point about demand and conservation resonates, and the last foreign policy column I wrote with Megan O'Sullivan tried to call attention to that. I want to come to Tatiana, but just quickly um, explain, obviously hydropower varies to some extent with natural elements. Just explain for people why nuclear is down. There are two reasons. The first one is my home country, France. Uh, I was checking the numbers, so uh, usually France is about 400 terawatt hours uh, per year. In the first six months, we have generated 154 terawatt hours. So nuclear against about 200 terawatt hours. So nuclear is really done because of corrosion issues, because of maintenance, which has been delayed, because the plants are getting towards their 40 years lifetime, so need you know more thorough inspection. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that Germany has continued with their nuclear power plant decommissioning. So a few gigawatt uh, free nuclear power plants were decommissioned at the end of last year. And they are going to decommission another three at the end of this year, which makes me absolutely furious because, for God's sake, we are going to bring back coal in order to compensate for an additional loss of nuclear generation. That's more than 30 terawatt hours. What are they thinking? This is completely insane. With all due respect to the German government, put your acts together and choose your priorities. Stop beating around the bush. Just be clear. Tell us what you think. Um, Tatiana, do you, do you agree with that pretty dire outlook for what this coming winter is going to have to look like in Europe? Again, some uncertainty. How cold is it? But broadly speaking? I would even add dark colors to this gloomy picture. Because don't forget that the European Union has imposed embargo on Russian coal which used to be very important for the supplies of the European consumers, more than 40%. So coal is also constrained. So it's not only nuclear, hydro, natural gas, and don't forget oil. There is oil embargo starting by the end of this year and coal embargo. It's really extremely difficult to remove the key energy producer from the global market. It is very painful, especially in the period when markets are already tight due to the post-COVID recovery. So if not for this slowdown in China currently, it would have been even worse. And everybody hopes that uh, the lockdowns in China are over and that China will pick up growing again. And then we are even in a worse situation this winter. So basically, that looks very frightening. So tell me what that actually looks like. Tell listeners what that looks like. You're talking about the market. And markets work with supply and demand. And then prices go up and people use less. And some other sources of supply might come to Europe instead of somewhere else. But are we not even talking about that anymore? You're talking about government rationing plans, where it won't be the market determining who gets to use energy. It will be government decisions that... You know, you're allowed to use it to heat your home, but you're not allowed it uh, allowed to use it to make industrial or chemical products. I mean, is that is that what we're talking about? And what will those plans? L- tell me about the conversations happening now in Brussels or in other capitals 
about what those plans will look like. How are those decisions going to be made and who's going to be prioritized and who's going to fall to the bottom of the list and which parts of the economy are going to be shuttered? That's exactly the key question. So, I mean, these plans are supposed to be prepared and there would be also some solidarity agreements so that, you know, uh, an industrial facility in one country is not going to be privileged against residential users in another. So countries are supposed to help each other. However, you are right. The key question right now is which industrial consumers or users are going to be prioritized because everybody right now is raising his hand saying, I am a fertilizer producer. I am very important. Think about food. I am going to produce pharmaceutical products. I am very important. Think about medicine. Everybody is very important. So each country is going to have to make a decision about which consumers are going to be prioritized. And of course, there are also consumers or industrial users which have interruptible contracts. So, you know, they, because they are paying lower prices, they can be interrupted. But there is also this duality that we need also to use, or we are using natural gas for the power generation. Power generation is also important for heating the homes and you know, for a lot of very important parts of the power of the power generation system in terms of demand. So, you know, you need also to think as well power and natural gas. They are absolutely integrated. Tatiana, is that is that uh, what do you see in terms of how the decisions will be made by governments for who's using energy and who's not? Once again, back to my thesis, it is a wartime. This is something that European politicians and consumers didn't want to admit for quite a long time. It's really, it's a, it sounds terrible, but that's the reality. And in the wartime, the economy is mobilized and the decisions are made by the governments, not by the free market. So this is the case for Europe this winter. And there will be lots of very difficult and painful choices on which industries, which groups of consumers to save, what to prioritize. And especially in the situation when we are not actually talking about extremely high prices, but we are talking about physical absence of the energy resources in certain parts of Europe. At any price, that will be a big problem. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com events or click the link in the show notes. And when you talk about wartime thinking... Uh, we're, we're used to thinking about a fairly integrated and somewhat cooperative European energy market when political pressure builds, when economic pressure builds to a breaking point. Is it easy for either of you or both of you to imagine cooperation breaks down and people look out for themselves 
And if you're a country where gas is transiting through to get to another country, you're saying, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to take it all for myself. And we start to see countries competing in a zero-sum way with each other. I mean, this could get kind of bleak. Is that right? This is absolutely correct. And this is one of the things that I'm really worried about. And maybe this is also something that Mr. Putin is hoping for, that, you know, having to prioritize. I mean, why should I give, you know, um, I am a German industrial user. Why should the residential users in, you know, the Czech Republic get the gas? Because uh, Germany is also a transit country. And, and this is what we need to be worried about, that there would be consequences. This is why it's very important that upfront from now on, we decide exactly which consumers will be prioritized in each country. And this is very clear that the gas is going to go where it has to go. Tatiana? Divide and rule has always been the core strategy of Putin regarding Europe. And you can see very clearly that even recently with this very controversial introduction of rubble payments for gas, it worked. Because 25 out of 30 consumers have accepted it. And only few refused. And the tensions have increased immediately. There were like several weeks of very tough negotiations inside Europe, requests to the European commissions, different public statements uh, saying, no, 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 we will never accept it. And then look, most of the consumers, most of the buyers, they've accepted. And now silence. So that worked once. And this is the expectation, I believe, from the Kremlin that it will work again. Very. And so what do you think, We've, uh, as Anne-Sophie said earlier, we've seen the ostensibly temporary shutdown of Nord Stream 1. And the question is whether it's going to restart. Uh, and uh, Tatiana, do you, do you expect uh, Russian gas supplies to, to restart and to continue even at a reduced level? Or what do you think Russia's strategy will be with gas supplies to allow Europe to fill inventories? And then what will they do this winter? I suspect that starting from the beginning of June, when Russia saw that actually Europe is filling in the storages quite quickly, the strategy was to stop it, to keep Europeans uh, in shortage. So first, that was uh, the uh, switch off of the uh, of those countries which refused to pay in rubles, uh, the reduction of uh, flows via Ukraine, based on quite strange argumentation that uh, Gazprom can supply this gas only through Sakhranovka uh, entry point and Suja entry point doesn't work for Gazprom. Uh, it's really strange. But uh, right now, with the Nord Stream, the situation is even more odd because uh, the turbines, which ha uh, the maintenance is required, it's like a normal process which happens every year. Uh, but uh, Russian authority, which overviews the technical readiness of these turbines, uh, it has issued an order prohibiting to use the turbines without backup. So you cannot actually change them. You cannot repair them uh, in a normal way. They have all to be sent uh, for the maintenance simultaneously. 
and there are sanctions, and there is this whole discussion about uh, this plant uh, owned by Siemens in Canada. So you know the story. Finally, the turbine was sent back to Russia, well, to Germany, and it's still a question how it will end up in Russia. And Russian side is already claiming that it doesn't have any papers and guarantees for this turbine. So the process is becoming very, very slow. And I I can tell you, if there is a good will from the supplier, he will always find the way how to solve these uh, uh, problems. But there is no good will. There is a desire to spread this process as long as possible. So back to your question. I assume that in two weeks, uh, the flow via Nord Stream might be restarted, but at a very, very low volume, not at the historical normal levels. And to, and they can be stopped at any moment, again, under the same pretext that turbines need to be maintained, yeah, just to keep Europeans under the pressure just to show that the power is in hands of Russia here. Tatiana, what's Russia's sort of technical ability to keep gas flows at that level? Is it Are they filling inventories at home? Are they just shutting in fields? Does that cause long-term damage? Is, is, how does this look inside Russia? I mean, we should preface this by saying very little that seems to be happening is... <laughs> rational in a, in a self-interested way and and uh, is horrific in terms of the humanitarian abuse in Ukraine. But what's the thinking to the extent you have any insights there in, in, in Moscow in terms of how they're thinking about what it means for them to keep gas supplies this low? It is regarded as an acceptable damage. Gazprom has lost already 10% of its production during the first half of 2022, which is quite significant. But actually, it's not that critical because two-thirds of the Russian gas output is consumed domestically anyway. So there is this uh, base load provided by the domestic demand. And uh, actually... Gazprom, first of all, is used to huge swings uh, due to the uh, seasonality. It's about 30% up and down in winter and in summer. So keeping uh, all overall production at 30% lower level than normal, it is something that Gazprom is technically prepared to do. Yes, the revenues will be lost. Yes, some of the pipelines will have to be closed. Yes, there will be problems with the supplies of some of the domestic consumers located in the western part of the country. But again, it's an acceptable damage because the stakes are extremely high for the whole Russian state. And Sophie, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the how you see the broader European policy response to this. We spoke about one aspect of it, which is there's going to have to be probably some more um, government intervention in thinking about potentially rationing energy, just not enough energy supply for everyone. But that's against a backdrop of uh, of what? Of a lot of investment to ramp up LNG, floating terminals in the near term, permanent terminals a couple of years further out, increased coal use, even some coal mines reopening. I saw reports that France was using more fuel oil. Um, And as you said, maybe not enough focus on demand. Um, 
what's the what's the land? How should we think about the policy response right now to this energy crisis in Europe, in the near term? And then let's also talk about the longer term, the transition, climate, the climate crisis. No, that's a very good question, and I think this is very well articulated in the Repower EU strategy, which was first published on the 8th of March and then complemented on the 18th of May. So, I mean, it's really, first of all, trying to build up renewable as fast as possible in order f- I mean, first of all, to replace natural gas in the power generation, but also, I mean, there is still, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emission in the backdrop, so by 2030. So this is a first thing. Uh, the target is to have more than 1,200 gigawatts of renewable capacity by the end of 2030. So that means a very, very substantial increase in terms of the addition of wind and solar capacity every year. We need to, between now and 2030, to multiply the normal addition by free. So this is very substantial. And do you see that happening or is are, are we lagging on those Well, goals? I mean, already for 2022, I think it's going to be complicated because, I mean, you know, <laughs> there is only that much that you can do. But what they are trying to do is to really improve in terms of the planning and permitting because this is what varies a lot on a country-by-country basis but is also making some projects wait a few years before they actually get the permit and they can actually start the construction. So, And on top of that, you not only need to have uh, the permitting for the uh, capacity itself, but you also need to have the transmission lines because it's all very good to have, you know, wind and solar capacity. If you don't have the transmission line, it's not going to go anywhere. It's also uh, looking at um, biomethane. So they want to increase the production of biomethane between 3 billion cubic meters in 2021 to 35. It's ambitions. It's achievable. There is also, you know, uh, the target to increase the green hydrogen production, uh, or actually hydrogen uh, demand in Europe uh, from about 10 million tons today to 20 million tons in 2030. So 10 million tons, which will be green hydrogen produced domestically. So again, an additional coal to renewable generation plus 10 million tons imported. There are many plans. What is really scary for me is the ambition in terms of the scale and speed of deployment. So, just to give an example, 10 million tons of green hydrogen produced domestically, this is an additional 500 terawatt hours of renewable capacity. That's about 70% of what we are producing right now in Europe. 10 million tons of imported hydrogen, this is about 40 of this NEOM project, which is currently considered in Saudi Arabia. So that's a lot of project. And this is supposed to happen in eight years. That is a critical issue, you know, the scale. And again, on the demand side, I mean, there is so much to be done in terms of energy efficiency that we need to prepare now. And it's not only about, you know, the heat pump, the supply chains, etc., but you also need to have people who are trained to install that. It's local workforce, by the way. But I do not have the impression that these workforce issues are addressed right now because you need to train these people so that they are ready to start installing or better insulating the houses. And that is absolutely essential. Tatiana, I'm curious how this is impacting. um, We've been talking about Europe, but let's talk about the rest of the world and how what's happening in Europe is impacting the rest of the world. Uh, So this... More and more natural gas to Europe has to come from somewhere else. Uh, that presumably is part of the reason China has plans to increase coal uh, production capacity 300 million tons and why some emerging market countries like Pakistan are struggling to afford LNG or, or coal right now. Um, these are countries that struggle to meet electricity demand 
um, normally, and and now it's it's all that much harder. So, what does this mean for the global gas market for um, for other regions? So, as usual, the weakest countries, the poorest countries, are becoming the first victims of this war. And you've mentioned Bangladesh, Pakistan, the other countries of Southeast Asia, which simply cannot afford LNG at these crazy prices. So, yeah, they will have to reduce their demand. They will have to switch to coal, which is also bloody expensive. And uh, they are also simultaneously facing food crisis. So you can imagine that this will destabilize their political systems, not only economy. And I am frankly uh, expecting a domino effect in terms of destabilization of the uh, societies which are not really rich and stable. So uh, this spillover effect, uh, it will be seen, I'm afraid, already this winter. Actually, Sri Lanka is a good example of how that happens. And interesting enough, Sri Lanka has already called Putin to help to start supplies of energy. And this is part of the bigger geopolitical strategy of building anti-Western bloc where energy will be an essential part uh, bringing together very different countries because they are lacking this energy and the West is taking away everything that they have. They are disappointed, they are angry, And in this respect, they are ready to join alliance with Russia. So again, the stakes are much higher than just how to spend this winter. It is about a longer-term geopolitical order. And you both have looked really carefully at the global LNG market today and in the future. Is... um how how is it how is the outlook changing because of this we you know qatar just brought in a final partner on 25 billion dollar expansion in lng more lots of contracts being signed with the us for new us lng projects to cross the finish line at the same time company countries at least in europe are still saying we're committed to the same climate goals and we want lng now but we don't want it in the longer term um are we How's the longer-term outlook being impacted by this in terms of uh, investment uh, in in LNG projects? So, first of all, I would like to highlight one additional pending issue which may actually be coming very fast. This is uh, Russia suggesting that we might have an LNG for rubble scheme. So, until now, we have only had that issue for pipeline gas towards Europe. Uh, Looking at the numbers, we have still had quite healthy uh, number of LNG cargoes coming to Europe. Uh, it was about, you know, half of the uh, Russian LNG exports have come to Europe over the first half of the year. So actually the only country which has stopped importing uh, LNG from Russia has been the United Kingdom. But we still have a lot going to Italy, to the Netherlands, to Belgium, to Spain. Nobody's talking about that, obviously. But when you are considering where the Russian LNG exports are going right now, 75% is going to unfriendly countries, whether this is European or Japan. So uh, if suddenly, um, if we basically follow, you know, what is happening on the pipeline side and we apply that to the LNG and that LNG is no longer going to these very unfriendly countries, then we are going to a very interesting musical chairs happening. And this is why the Japanese are very worried because uh, they are getting about 10% of their LNG coming from Russia 
So they may no longer have access to that gas, which, by the way, is cheap because, well, cheap, it's relatively cheap because it's oil-linked contract. They may have to go instead to the spot market in competition with European buyers. So, yeah, uh, we might have another catastrophe coming to us, where, again, as Tatiana was saying, you know, that could be a possibility for Russia to say, okay, I'm going to take that LNG away from the unfriendly country. And Pakistan, Bangladesh, oh, we know you are in trouble. So maybe, you know, we can actually supply you with um, cheaper LNG, cheaper than the spot market. Why don't you have a deal with us? That would be very interesting. And I think they can very well play that card. But to your comment. So, Uh, I am finalizing a report about the appetite of um, China on LNG, on any type of LNG. China has been signing tons of contracts since beginning of 2021, but in particular since September 2021. And this is really an interesting contrast when you are looking at what China is doing. And the European companies, as you mentioned, are really hesitating about signing long-term contracts. Why? Because they want LNG now. So this is why they are scrambling, trying to build as many floating storage and regasification units as possible in order to have access to that LNG. Because right now, our LNG infrastructure in Europe, it's full. It's running at maximum capacity in Northwest Europe. It cannot cope for and absorb more LNG. So we need to have that additional capacity. But uh, if you want to have more LNG, and especially more LNG in the future, you are looking at new plants which have not yet come online or have not yet been FID'd. And this is, you know, why you have this kind of different discussion. So the Europeans, they want LNG now or they want LNG in a couple of years from now, but for a short duration. And the LNG sponsors, they are well, we want to have a 15 to 20 year contract, of course, because, you know, we cannot be only signing for a five to 10 year contract. It doesn't work like that. So this is particularly interesting, this kind of dichotomy between the buyers on one side and the sellers of LNG on the other. And actually, that can be also applicable to any kind of new suppliers to Europe. So, you know, we have been talking about, hey, uh, Azerbaijan could supply us more gas. Yes, you need to build the infrastructure and you probably need to sign some long-term contract as well. Israel is made, etc. I mean, who thinks that these people are going to invest into heavy infrastructure without any long-term certainty? I mean, this is madness. I guess for LNG exports, like a U.S. project, <clears throat> you, you, it's hard to finance that without a long-term time frame. That doesn't have to always be Europe. I mean, you could think about the different time frames for the developing world, for Africa, for Southeast Asia, which even in the IEA's net zero roadmaps, which we're unfortunately not on track for, I mean, you see gas playing a role there longer term. Is that how this is going to play out? Actually, in the INS zero scenario, you have LNG trade, which is increasing still a little bit in the 2020 and then literally collapsing after that. So, you know, I think anybody who is looking at uh, some net zero scenarios and also, for example, the BP scenarios and is looking at what is happening in the 2030s with LNG trade collapsing should be actually worried about that happening. So this is actually the key question. Now, the second big problem is that we have super high gas prices right now. Who is going to want to invest into that gas in Southeast Asia, in India. Okay, we have said China, 
seize a whole for LNG. Fine. But all the other countries, they have a problem of affordability. So we may actually be destroying that demand potential in the long term. So if you are thinking that, hey, I am going to sell LNG to Europe for 10 years, and then by 2035, I will have potential in Southeast Asia, I am not so sure. First of all, because they may actually stick with coal and leapfrog to renewable. And second problem is that they need also support to invest in the infrastructure, so the import infrastructure. And you know that, you know, some of the development banks, they are not particularly, um, they don't particularly like, you know, supporting LNG infrastructure because this is not green enough. So I see a potential demand destruction problem down the line, unless LNG suppliers are saying, okay, we know that these markets here, this is the future for us. Um, the LNG is going to arrive if we start FID now, it's going to arrive 26, 27, etc. Maybe a little bit earlier, depending on the type of plant you are building. But we will make sure that the gas for these developing countries is going to be affordable. That will maybe ensure to have a future for natural gas in that region. Otherwise, I'm quite worried about the consequence of a free year of very high gas prices. Because do, not, do remember, uh, the cavalry, Qatar, Canada, Mozambique maybe, they arrive in 25, 26, not before. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And then, Tatiana, what do you think all of that means for the energy transition, the idea that we're, there are certain steps that people see as necessary to take today for energy security, so you're not dependent on Russia? As Anne-Sophie said, it takes a few years for these projects to come online, and they need to operate for a while to pay back their investors. At the same time, she said earlier, you do see an accelerated uh, urgency to putting renewables to work and putting clean energy projects uh, to work. So how is that all going to balance out? Are we Is this a major setback or do you think it maybe is a near-term setback, but we're going to see an accelerated effort to move away from oil and gas overall? Well, I think that there will be definitely a long-term effect on moving away from oil and gas because they are so much geopolitically sensitive and this current crisis demonstrates it to a scale never actually seen before. It's absolutely extraordinary in the human history. So... uh, Any investor, any consumer will now think twice before deciding to use gas or oil in their future projects. Uh, When making investment decision, they will be extremely cautious. The situation is different for those assets which are in place already and which are consuming oil and gas. Here, yes, they will try to find the temporary solutions, but for the next improvement, for the next generation, uh, they will look for the alternatives. So in this respect, I believe that energy transition will speed up, though a lot will depend on the states, because currently my assessment is that the states, actually, the governments, they fail to provide the necessary regulatory framework to implement this energy transition at the speed needed. I'm looking at Europe, I'm looking at the other parts of the world. 
monopolies uh, which are controlling the markets. They are actually not allowing normal development of the renewables, of the heat pumps, of the rooftop solar, of electricity storage. Uh, There is no framework uh, in place to do it quickly with low transactional costs. Uh, The supply chains uh, were heavily affected by COVID and they have not restored and the governments are not helping to restore them. So uh, there are lots of problems in the short to medium term. And I am afraid indeed that the speed of the energy transition in the next few years will be not as fast as everybody was expecting. But later on, uh, this trend uh, hopefully will change. Though the question for all of us now is how to survive during the next few years without major political and economic crashes. You said you said the next few years. So just to be clear, what we the the outlook you described for this winter is probably one we will see for the next couple of winters. And Sophie, yeah, because the problem is that on the LNG side, there are relatively few additions which are going to happen over the next few years. And on top of that, we may actually lose a project, which is the Arctic Two LNG project in Russia, which may be actually the victim of sanction. In the best case, this project is actually very much delayed or maybe not happening at all. So that is a concern because when you are looking at the pipeline of LNG projects, that was really a big chunk. Now, we are seeing a few fast LNG projects which are being considered and which may, I say may, come online next year, but they are very small LNG projects. However, right now, any kind of LNG that you know we can get is good. Uh, we very much hope that Freeport LNG, for example, is going to come back very rapidly. We very much hope that nothing is going to happen anywhere in terms of LNG supplies, that is absolutely crucial. But yeah, this is our key issue. The LNG markets from the very beginning were going to be tight from 2022 to 2025. And just coming back to the point we were talking about a moment ago, what all of this investment in new infrastructure means for the transition when... Sometimes you hear people say, yes, we're investing a lot in gas infrastructure, but don't worry about it because it'll all be hydrogen and ammonia ready. How real is that and how much should we be skeptical about claims like that? And Sophie? That's a very interesting question. We are actually doing research on that, trying to understand what is a hydrogen-ready LNG import terminal and how basically you can transform one terminal into another thing. So, I mean, hydrogen-ready, what does it import actually? Is it importing LNG, which is then going to be transformed into hydrogen? Is it going to import ammonia? Is it going to import liquid hydrogen, which, by the way, is at minus 250 degrees? Is it going to import liquid organic hydrogen carriers? Or is it going to import synthetic methane, whereby basically you would be producing hydrogen, mixing that with CO2, transporting that overseas, and this is basically you're still using the same LNG infrastructure, which seems to be a favorite solution for a couple of players. Uh, We'll come back and talk more about that topic. It's a really important one, and and you just published a great report here on hydrogen leaks, too, and that's an important environmental climate issue that we need. We will have more research about and we'll talk more about. We're just about out of time, but I want to take advantage, Tatiana, of having you here to talk about not just gas out of Russia, but oil out of Russia. We talked about an energy crisis, and part of that is the power sector and industry and Of course, a big part of that is high oil prices, high gasoline and diesel prices because of issues in the refining sector. Just 
how, first of all, how much in your analysis is our Russian oil produ- Russian oil production and Russian oil exports actually down right now? And what do you see as the likely path of that? How much further will it decline? Um, you know, there's this concern that I think was part of the motivator for the Janet Yellen and the Biden administration to put the idea of price caps on the table to say, well, the shipping insurance ban that Europe put in place is actually going to take so much Russian oil off the market, you're going to hurt all of us as well as Russia. Let's try to figure out if we can hurt Russia by taking revenue away, but not cause the supply to go away. Um, In which case, I'm kind of curious what you see as um, the outlook for Russian oil supply, not just today, but by the end of the year, depending on whether the European policy in the last sanctions package has impact or not, and whether some idea like this price cap thing could have impact or not. So far, the sanctions on oil had very limited effect. Uh, Initially, in March, in April, there was a quite visible decline, like up to 10-12% decline in the uh, oil exports, which is completely compensated by higher oil price, even assuming price discounts which Russia was providing to its oil buyers. But uh, in June, in July, actually, the uh, production and export volumes are coming back to their historical levels. So we can say that currently, so far, the sanctions are not actually achieving their target. In the longer term, as the EU is uh, implementing its oil embargo uh, and with all these constraints on insurance and shipping, there will be definitely some effect to a limited extent. So we are probably talking about 10-15% decline in the Russian uh, oil exports and corresponding decline in the Russian oil output, which is sensitive. And Russia will have to spend uh, some investments on redirecting its oil flows, both seaborne and uh, by pipelines. And it will have to sell its oil with the discount uh, to the Asian buyers. But it is still sustainable economically. It is still providing sufficient financing for the Russian budget to keep on going in Ukraine. So therefore, I'm afraid the current system doesn't work as people were hoping. Uh, The price cap idea, it is widely discussed, but what I hear already from the Russian establishment is quite an ironical answer. Okay, we will introduce price floor, just prohibiting to sell oil below a certain price. And knowing the system, I would say, yeah, that can work. And if you add to that the topic we were discussing in the beginning uh, of our podcast today, natural gas, there is also this leverage that Russia has over Europe just saying, if you guys introduce price cap, we will completely stop our gas, gas supplies. And it will work, as we can see. So uh, it is all really interlinked and complicated, but I think Russia still has a lot of uh, market power uh, in the hydrocarbons and uh, it will take time really to find a solution. There are no straightforward, simple solutions at the moment. So it sounds like you think that risk of Russian retaliation for something like a price cap is real, either in the gas market or the oil market. And 
the rationale for it, the price cap idea, which is if, well, if we don't do this, you're going to see such a significant reduction in Russian oil because nobody can insure cargoes. It sounds like you're saying you're a little more skeptical that, in fact, there are workarounds. Russia can offer to insure something. Maybe other sovereigns can step in. That It'll have some impact, but a modest one. Um, if you don't have a price cap mechanism, you just have the six sanctions package go into effect. You're saying that'll have some impact on Russian oil supply and exports, but maybe not as large as some people think. Is that what I heard you say? Yes, absolutely. Russia is now establishing, it has actually founded already the insurance company, which is state-supported. There are some arrangements uh, with India, with the other BRICS countries. So uh, they are forming an alliance which could actually execute this role in insuring the ships. It's yet to be discussed. It's nothing fixed yet, but the discussion is there. And yes, of course, there is damage already for the Russian budget revenues and for the Russian oil and gas industry, but it's not such a destructive damage as uh, people were initially discussing in the uh, beginning of this year. So it will take much longer. It will not actually deliver any results in the next few months or even in the next few years. We are talking about much longer time frame to see how these sanctions are really working. Again, that was Jason Bordoff, founding director of the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy and host of Columbia Energy Exchange. He was speaking to Anne-Sophie Corbeau, a global research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy, and Dr. Tatiana Mitrova, a research fellow there. We help make Columbia Energy Exchange, so go subscribe wherever you get podcasts for deep dives with the world's top energy and climate leaders from government, business, academia, and civil society. Columbia Energy Exchange is full of conversations like the one you just heard. And this is The Carbon Copy. We're a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. This episode was produced by Cecily Mesa-Martinez and Davina Bawaje. Sean Marquand was our engineer. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude's a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating review wherever you get your podcasts. Apple or Spotify are a good place to do that. Send us your thoughts on social media, and we'll catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy.